0: This is a rock and roll podcast produced by Bituminous Press in Greensboro, North Carolina. This is Loud and Sure of Myself. I should be a radio person. Sure.
1: Imagine that you're 15 and you want to play rock and roll. Imagine further that the people who make records seem like they're from another world. Imagine that no one can hand you a road map or tell you how to get to that world. This is loud and sure of myself. My name is Jerry Stanick. Oh, yeah. Billy Sheehan hardly needs an introduction. He is, first and foremost, a virtuoso, one of the most formidable bassists in the world. He has forged a career from humble beginnings in Buffalo, New York, where he first made a name for himself as a member of TALIS. And he is my guest today on Loud and Sure of Myself. Welcome, Billy.
2: Well, thanks for the kind words.
1: (laughs) You're welcome. Now for I'll me some that. part well you have I think you have <laughs> um, now for me some of my earliest memories are wrapped up in sitting in front of an old Zenith console stereo and listening to three Beatles LPs over and over, literally three or four years old and but that feeling that something extraordinary was going on and I needed to pay attention or, or maybe even be obsessed with it do you have some kind of memory like that where you uh, make that connection with music
2: absolutely yeah in a similar manner I, I had a little Arvin uh, I think it was a mono uh, record player just a little toy thing that you could open up the plastic top but we also had a decent stereo in the house a Motorola and then we also had a console for a while but uh I could take the Arvin up to my room where the others were relegated to other parts of the home. And uh, I would play records over and over and over and over again. I remember one of the ones I drove people crazy with one time was uh, uh, Gary U.S. Bond's New Orleans. (laughs) Uh, But uh, prior to that, uh, the first single I ever bought was The Birds' uh, Eight Miles High. Uh, prior to that, I had, um, oh, I, the, having a rave up with the Yardbirds was a huge uh, record for me. Bass player Paul Samuel Smith, Yardbirds were the band that Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, and Jimmy Page all played in at one point or another. So that was a big thing. But yeah, I used to listen a lot, and uh, not only to rock, as I got a little older, I started uh, down uh, a really uh, wide spectrum of uh, listening Mm -hmm. sonny rollins way out west bebop sax tenor sax player oscar peterson great uh uh, mind-blowing piano player uh he was a he was a um i think he was a fan of art tatum who i discovered years later and i see the see the uh similarity between the two i often call myself a, a black supremacist because uh I said, and if you're not a black supremacist, go listen to Art Tatum
1: play piano. You will <laughs> right, be. Right. Right.
2: Because uh, it's just so mind blowing and amazing. But you and,
1: discovered uh, jazz then.
2: Yeah, and classical too, a lot of classical stuff.
1: Now, were your the parents Binderberg listening concertos. to that stuff? What was that? Were your parents listening to that stuff?
2: No. My mom was a Sinatra, Tony Bennett, uh, Ella Fitzgerald. Okay. My mom had great taste in music, and she listened to great Big band stuff, and she was a fan when she was a young girl. I had older brothers and sisters that were in all kinds of things. My one of my older sisters, Marianne, she was into more folk stuff, but she was also hip to the British Invasion rock that happened uh, pre, just pre and post uh, Beatles appearing at, at Sullivan Show.
1: Right. So you were so, you were exposed to all of that stuff.
2: Yeah, yeah. It was quite a wide range, and I'm glad because even the radio back then. I was just discussing this with someone recently they would play a hard country um you know uh Johnny Cash or uh Conway Twitty
0: or, right. uh
2: Loretta Lynn they, they would play it on the rock stations yeah. and there were and there were hybrid bands like the Birds or Poco or other bands that were a little bit of both uh, uh, and 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 hybrids of other genres too from Emerson lake and Palmer uh, doing the to, uh, <laughs> uh, uh <laughs> literally, uh, to, uh, uh, some bands, uh, digging into, uh uh, 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 jazz, uh, roots, the whole jazz rock explosion, uh, oh, like the horn bands with Chicago and Blood, Sweat, and Tears.
1: Yeah. And those um, early Chicago records, my God.
2: I was just listening today to Rick Beato, uh, giving a rundown of why make me smile is such a spectacular song off the second Chicago record yeah. and right out of high school I was in a, a horn band we had uh, four four horns three singers guitar bass drums keyboards 11 guys and uh, <laughs> we played all Chicago Bloodfoot tears eyes of March Joe Cocker anything with a horn section and we would play and it was a quite a, a great uh, Exposure and I, I I I think musicians do themselves a great favor when they start to listen to more than just one type of music or one artist.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean that Chicago stuff, uh, oh, man, the, the drumming just I mean oh, just, I know. just start Bad with boy. the drumming and Danny Serafin. It's so musical. Um, it's brilliant. and there's a lot to learn from from that stuff, no doubt. Um, yeah, we
2: had um, in our horn band we did their first song called "Introductions" off their first record. Mm-hmm. They had a section in it, it was a time signature of nineteen eight, <laughs> and uh, it turns out that they, I think they got it from good writers write great writers. steal. I think they got it from Don Ellis, which is a jazz trump player that had this big band that played out this wild time signature crazy stuff. Right, and he had a, he had a song that he counted off. By, by yelling out one two three one two three one two one two one two one one two one two one two and that was nineteen right. and that's how the band started, wow. but a section in the introductions is a nineteen eight. We yeah. were we are all excited at the fact that we could play a a part that was
1: such an oddball so an oddball time signature. time signature. And I have that record. I'm going to have to go back and revisit that yeah. today.
2: Oh right right yes yeah.
1: So you were playing that
2: one two three one two three one two one two one two one one two one two.
1: Well, let me ask you this. So oh, but and also just regarding the music I uh you and I discussed before we started rolling tape here that um uh, I did a a band I was in did a brief tour with uh, Mr. Big back in 1991. Yeah. And I seem to remember at that time that you were very much into uh some more poppy stuff like uh Bus Stop by the
0: Hollies.
2: Oh yeah yeah singing singing bands uh, Well, the, my first band I spent the most time in Dallas was just three of us but we all sang and we sang all uh, Holly's uh, Crosby Stills and Nash Three Dog Night all bands that had a lot of vocals in them yeah. uh, Carrie Out Wayward Son by Kansas all kinds of things like that that had way more instrumentation and voices than we had but we just faked it and sang uh-huh. it anyway
1: and you did those three part harmonies
2: yeah absolutely
1: so all this music you're exposed to. Um, when were you first cognizant of the bass as as something um, unique and and separate from a guitar or other instruments?
2: Almost instantly, because uh, around the corner from me, a gentleman by the name of Joe Hesse he was my big brother's age and they had a band called the Rockin' Paramounts and Joe was a bass player Joe and his brother Jimmy were both in bands and uh, so I could hear the bass at night and I'm laying in bed I was a little kid had to go to bed early but I could hear the bass because it travels like you hear a subwoofer a yeah. car stereo from blocks and blocks away Uh so uh, and and Joe, I liked Joe a lot. He was a great guy, and he was always nice to me. He's a cool guy, he had a beautiful girlfriend, and a Triumph motorcycle. So I, I was you know wanted <laughs> to be like him.
1: Something to aspire to, no doubt.
2: Exactly right. And uh, so we, uh, so he let me pick up his bass one time, and you know, and I had gotten a guitar because my sister had one but I was longing for, I knew this wasn't my calling. I was learning songs and chords. Then I finally was able to get my bass, and uh, then I just concentrated on that, because I remember my brother sitting me down or listen to a radio play some song, unknown song, and he goes, yeah, hear that there? Yeah, that thing that right there? Yeah, he goes, that's the bass. Oh, yeah, like Joe plays. You know, identify what the bass was right away. And, and oddly, years and years later, and throughout the years, it's funny that some people have no idea that a bass is not a guitar. (laughs) Well, right. It's it's an interesting... uh,
0: It's a bass, right.
2: Walking through airports with my carry-on bag bass, what what kind of guitar is that? It's
1: a
0: bass. (laughs) (laughs) What's the difference? Right.
1: Well, Well, you know, uh, my funny story is uh, playing some of my first shows when I was about 14, and we actually started our first band without a bass. Yeah, it's not uncommon. And, uh, you know, and then we get out, get to these shows and, and it's like, wow, those guys got a bass and there's a, a huge difference the way it they sound. a lot different, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So well, yeah, um, we picked it up quickly, Rascals, but...
2: I'm sorry, The Young Rascals and The Doors, both bands that were... It didn't actually have a dedicated bass player. And they had one in the studio, of course,
1: but... Right. But But performed live without. Uh, and I've seen. I've been going here in Greensboro to see uh, an organ trio. Uh, yeah, a lot of uh, Jimmy Smith used to. Uh,
2: what they call a kick bass. So they would they would kick bass. In other words, play it with their feet
1: on the yes. organ pedals. And we've got I a mean, guy here in uh, in Greensboro named Sam uh, Frybush, and he is kind of phenomenal to go and watch. And every limb, every limb is moving. Every limb is moving. So how old are you when you get this your your base? I have to every time I forget and I gotta
2: start going back and adding up but I was I was pretty young I must have been 12, 13, maybe 14.
1: okay and do you immediately get into some kind of intense practice regimen?
2: Not so much as playing along with records okay. And, uh, for me, that was, that's why I've still, to this day, I'm, i play by ear. I don't read music. I don't read tablature or chord charts or number systems. I just got to listen, hear it, memorize it and play it by ear. And, uh, one of the great, there's many disadvantages with that, but one of the great advantages of that is when if you sit down with some people and they start playing, you instantly know by ear where you're going.
1: Where you're going, right.
2: And, uh, so, uh, there's a lot of, uh players that, uh, of notes that play by ear only, some that know both. I know some that know, that are grandmasters at both at the same time. That's, uh, I, I, I wish I was. Right. But, uh, so so for me it was mostly playing along with records. Uh, the first Yardbirds record I may have mentioned, uh, having a rave up with the Yardbirds. Uh, the Vinyl of Fudge first record, there was a challenge with some amazing bass playing on there. Right. a bunch of other uh, bands that I played along with. And then even into the seventies, when I was playing in bands and such, I'd put on the who's next record and play along with John. That was sold all day.
1: Right. Who had the most amazing right hand.
2: Yeah. A great, super great right hand. Yeah. And, uh, uh, so it was, and and even today I'm, I'm still learning. I like to, uh, you know, sit around and play along or play old songs or things of that nature. So... Uh,
1: but the other uh, thing yes. that does is, is give you a sense of, of song structure, too.
2: Yeah, because in the early days, all I did was play songs. There was no bass solos, particularly other than maybe the My Generation song by The Who or a, right. a couple little, little snippets. There was no unaccompanied bass solo that I had ever heard. Uh, other than some some jazz thing and then even then the drummer is still going Uh, so it was all about songs we did uh, we did one show one time where the contract required us to play Beatles songs all night and so we played about three or four hours of Beatles songs in the end uh, admittedly we stretched it by doing a Ringo or a George Harrison or a (laughs) Paul McCartney song but it's still four hours of Beatles songs and uh, we knew that many songs Uh, right just dozens and dozens and dozens probably hundreds of songs so uh, that was uh, uh an essential element of uh th- that playing bass as a as a as an ensemble uh, and doing songs and then again at one detail i i left out which might be important is uh when i first went to see my friend joe around the corner when i when i finally got to actually see him play because i could sit outside on the driveway, but I was a little kid. They went on me coming in the house, you know, right. the, the big kids. And one time Joe was there with his drummer and I, I walked in and he let me come in and watch him. And, uh, I said, well, Joe, where's the, where's the rest of the band? It's just you and the drummer. He goes, yeah, we practice like that on purpose. Cause every time the uh, drummer hits his bass drum, I got to hit a note wow. and I got to play what the drummer plays. Right. So before I, before I even owned a bass, I knew that that was the, a, that a was a very section. very lucky moment in my life that I was given that fu- fundamental foundation maxim for bass players, and to this day I'll sit down with a young player even even accomplished player, and they have no idea that that's the case. I go, "Where are you kidding? Wow. <laughs> you how can you you can't play unless you're playing with the drums."
1: Right, exactly. the term rhythm section actually. When people
2: send me a track to play on. And say we're going to do the drums later. I go no, 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 no. They I, I got to be the real drums down first because <laughs> I played it now. That's the foundation. So yeah. it's funny.
1: So how old are you then when you finally uh, form your own band or or join a band, uh, or at least what high, what you know? If you don't necessarily know the age, what's what's the situation?
2: I'm in high school. Okay, and I got a bass and I got an amp, which was quite a luxury at the time. I had my Fender bass and uh, my original P bass, which I still have, and a uh, Fender Super Bassman amp with JBL 15s in it. Mm-hmm. That was my that was my pride and joy. <laughs> and uh, I started a little uh, kind of a jazz thing: me, a sax and drums.
0: Whoa! And
2: and no chordal
1: instrument. Interesting. And,
2: And we played Frank Zappa and Miles Davis, Bitches Brew by Miles Davis. And we were high school kids.
1: Right. And 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 so obviously, though, at this point, you're already an accomplished player from all of those records you've been... I
2: don't know if I'd say that, but
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was was up there. But you were trying. You were trying.
2: Then after that, uh, in high school, me and the sax player ended up joining a band that was horn band, which I mentioned earlier. Right. Uh, and From there, I got into the precursor of Talus and then it became Talus and right. that went on until, there's a few other uh, uh, left turns, but generally until I, I left Buffalo in 85.
0: Right.
1: At some point, does it cross your mind that, okay, this, uh, I've got my Fender Precision bass, and this can be my job the, uh, was it just a I, natural progression? did you think about yeah, it
2: I, I never I never it's funny because we often in interviews get questions of a similar nature <clears throat> that did you when you plan to there was no plan there's no it's just kind of you're like a rudderless ship on a windless sea, and I'm playing and I'm in bands and next thing you know we get paid and I'm making a little money and you know I Bought some more gear and right. got an got an apartment and kept and more that going. And we're playing to more people, and it was never any uh, any course set or map followed. Um, it was just kind of just kind of went that way. I uh, never thought about anything other than playing, mm-hmm. as far as the uh, occupation
1: goes. And you were still uh, when you start playing in high school. Obviously, you're living at home. But it, it really just spreads out from there without any thought.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And there was no, never any thought of uh, you know, becoming famous or getting, you know, travel in the world. I just wanted to play. We you just
1: wanted did. to play, right. Yeah, and, was, you know, I mean, I have not had the kind of career that you have. But, you know, it was it was the same for me starting 14, 15 in bands. and And all I really knew was that I wanted to play. And, and I grew up in a place where, uh, you know, there was no original music scene in a small coal mining town in western Pennsylvania. Uh, people played covers. So so that's what I did. And it,
2: it, Yeah, it, everyone, everyone did. Uh, and people, uh, it kind of irked me later on where people would, would be just starting. You say, oh, well, you don't want to play covers. I'm going to play all originals. And I go, well, no one else ever did, no one ever made it. Yeah. Without being a cover from ACDC to Van Halen to the Beatles to you name it. Right. They were doing covers before they, you know, they were they were uh, like a little kid learns to speak. You right. know, you, uh, you imitate the words of others until you have something to say. And uh, they were skipping that step. And as a result, a lot of the uh, bands that did such a thing. We, we never we never heard from them again right. because they just didn't really know how to put a song together because they'd never played one before.
1: Yeah, and I've you know I've had this same conversation with people. You know, to me that was my education as as a musician. Um, and I've talked to a good friend of mine from Pittsburgh, a guy named Norman Nardini. Uh, Norman is the same way. Still, you know, I think he's seventy now, still studying records right um so uh and and i've had people you know when i got to new york in my 20s new york city there there without naming names there were people there who devalued the time i had spent in uh, cover bands and and i just could never understand that
2: uh yeah well it um i, I guess there's some kind of uh uh hierarchy of uh, people who write music and play their own music but people seeing that fail to realize what they'd done before i've got a a massive itunes collection of some incredibly rare demos all kinds of things and i got ronnie james dio singing i left my heart in san francisco (laughs) i got a bon scott singing to know you is to love you uh van halen playing uh uh uh, actually oddly Van Halen's club set list was almost the same as the Tallis set list Oh wow Punk interesting 49 by uh, James Gang yeah. you know the, all, all the same things uh, Grand Funk Railroad all that stuff uh, every band did and I've got a uh, I have the Beatles first demo uh, from 1963 for Decca Records in England I think there's about 20 songs on it and I always say to people guess how many of the songs were original
1: Right, I've heard that. And they're doing like Besame Mucho.
2: Not one original song.
1: Three Cool the Cats, uh, the, the Sheik of, uh, of Araby. Araby, yeah. Yeah.
2: Not one, not one original song on right. the whole record. Right. And uh, yeah, later on, they became one of the greatest, arguably one of the greatest writing bands ever. Bob Dylan was another guy, artist, that started to write his own songs as well. But he didn't do it until after he played a lot of other people. A lot of Woody
1: Guthrie songs.
2: <laughs> Same with Hendrix. Same with Hendrix Houston. No. Show bands and copy bands and cover bands. There's, so I've always campaigned for players. And then, as a matter of fact, recently, uh, on a, a bunch of interviews and uh, seminars that I've done, I've narrowed it down to the three things you've got to do. One is get in a band. Uh, essential. I see a lot of people on youtube all by themselves being unbelievable amazing right but you're not in a band (laughs) yeah what are you gonna do with that where where are you we're gonna take that get in a band get in a band with songs because a band without songs is really right I, I, i don't see the value of it and and the third part is get in a band with songs that you sing because uh American Idol and The Voice, they don't have bass players and drummers up on their to See how good they are. Right. It's about singing, singing is, is, the, is, is where it's at. So when you run the numbers of the uh, artists that did that route, it's hard to find very many at all uh, of note that hadn't done that. Gotten in a band with songs that they sang. McCartney, Lemmy, Sting, Getty, uh, Steve Harris, <laughs> the the uh, even Jocko's first record he had, I think the Isley Brothers on there to sing a song right. for him, and he yeah. played in cover bands with all kinds of songs to sing in it. Everybody did so. Uh, uh, just just uh, just an essential thing as far as uh, uh, what's required, and to be in a band, and if you don't have songs, why not do covers of the greatest songs in the world and start to get used to things being that way Run. so you know when you write a chorus to go into a bridge it's a hell of a chorus and the transition works perfectly oh, so God.
1: anyway well so with without knowing the time frame of talus, but I'm I'm curious about you know we, we already talked about the idea that practice for you is playing along to records the records you're listening to is incredibly broad uh, but at what point do you start to Uh, recognize the idea that uh, maybe you're doing something a little different on the bass than, than others are.
2: Um, I don't even think I did really. I was just trying for, because when I hear a musician play, uh, I wouldn't distinguish that. Well, he's a piano player, so I can't do that. So, I must be I must be pretty good because I can play a, hold a whole note underneath him while he does that. Right. No, is it, no is it, I would hear somebody play a Paganini Caprice or Oscar Peterson's West Side Story. Oh, wow! That's what a musical instrument can do. Man, I'm I'm way behind. I better I better light a fire here. And right. So you weren't
1: you didn't feel relegated to doing that. I'm going to sit here and play eighth notes, one note, and not that no, you can't I, do I, that not, because you do
2: no it's not that I wouldn't do that but I'm just saying just music in general has more to it than you know I, I would see uh, uh, Billy Cobham I, I saw him in uh, the band Dreams with the Brecker Brothers I don't know, before Mahavish Orchestra and the guy was a uh, change of the world as far as drumming is concerned as much as Buddy Rich did almost mm-hmm. unbelievable and I thought wow oh, uh, unlimited so I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily you know think and he didn't solo all night long, he, play, play, he played amazingly in the body of the song. So guys like that, same with Hendrix, great rhythm player, his chording and everything was fantastic. The solos people look at too, but a singing, songwriting chords, things like that. So I just looked at the bass as a musical instrument like anything else that should be able to do all kinds of things. Wow. Not just keep time, kick hat snare, or hold, uh, uh, chords down with your left hand and play the melody with your right hand on piano you know there, I, I, why not I, there was no one to tell me no bassist only plays these notes and you let the other guys do everything right. you know that's it was never never there maybe because I was somewhat isolated in the suburbs of Buffalo New York <laughs> uh, then- but, but nevertheless Buffalo was a hot 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 music town at the time uh, it was there was we, we when we first began playing in the early to mid-70s, I mean, there was probably 200 clubs within an hour drive.
1: Right. Easy. It was, Maybe more. It was such a different time. I know for me, I started playing out in 1978. And, you know, I'm in coal mining country in Pennsylvania, and the, the paper on the weekends, even in a small place like that, there was there would be two full pages of ads for dances with live bands yeah and so there was work to be had for music
2: every city in America was like that too and probably
1: England and wow. all over Europe as well and and now uh, not so much um, it's, it's it's a different world yeah but I still think and I, I I don't necessarily know what I'm trying to get at here except that it that at some point, is there a realization that you're doing things differently than other bass players? And, and then, yeah, that, you know, uh, it, it, um, late seventies, it started to become, and you were already in town by then.
2: Yeah. Uh, we went to see ZZ top open up for Ellis Cooper, New Year's Eve, 74, Buffalo, New York. And, uh, we, we, we knew the local promoters and also we had a very, very close seats, uh, two or three rows back and billy gibbons bent a string with his left hand or reached over with his right hand and touched the string to a higher fret mm-hmm. and i we looked at each other. we'd never seen anything like it before in our lives and yeah. so i went back and i sure enough i touched it string to a fret at a higher spot than my left hand and that's a hammer on right and then if you If you pull it off, that's a pull-off. Wow. And uh, I started doing it uh,
1: a lot and working on it a lot. Because you were not limited. You did not feel limited as to what a bass player should or shouldn't do.
2: Well, yeah, that's true. Uh, I I mean, I was just isolating one particular important uh, technique there that everybody knew about. When Van Halen came out in 78 or so, right. he was doing it. But but prior to that, I was doing it unknown that anyone else was doing it.
1: Uh, and you're doing it that, on the bass. Yeah. And you're doing it on
2: the bass. But it's strings and it strings and frets. <laughs> right. you
1: know? same, same, same principle. Applies. Right, it's the same principle. With,
2: with... So you were asking when, when I might have noticed. So at that point, I was doing things like that. I was playing a little Bach piece as a solo. Uh, uh, We would do extended jams uh, on some songs, the song Mr. Big by Free. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a...
1: A great, great song.
2: Yeah. uh, (laughs) uh, There was a a big, long solo in the middle of it. The bass player, Andy Frazier, I believe, was his name, great player. Uh, And so at one point I said to the guys in the band, hey, when we do the solo stop and i'll play and then i'll kill you to come back in right. and we were playing you know 21 nights in a row in clubs so anything to break the monotony of everything we were doing uh we we would we would take advantage of so sure enough they stopped i went off and did this thing and played some Bach and did a little uh, bunch of other nonsense on bass and count two three four back in and we end the song <laughs> and uh that was the beginning of Playing solo, so it was a little bit out of ordinary, the ordinary for some bass players. But though there were bass players like Tim Bogert around, who for the Philish who was doing stuff like that, who uh, was a big uh, influence on me. Mm-hmm. So, but at that point, uh, mid to late seventies, it was uh, there. There was something going on that that, that may have made me uh, uh, stick out a little bit from from the norm. And plus, I dressed quite a bit different too. That was the glam. The original glam era, and I had uh, these platform boots with six-inch heels, and I was about six foot seven <laughs> with them on. You <laughs> know, skinny as a well, rail, and my mom used to say, "You look like six o'clock," meaning the dial straight up and down.
0: Right, so, right, yes. I so got we it. were
2: doing uh, uh, of Hoople and Bowie and all kinds of T-Rex and stuff like that. So there was a uh, there was some degree of uh, entertainment. Aspect to it as well. Right,
1: right. And, you know, so you were aware of, of, you know, this is a show.
2: Yeah, there was a, uh, uh, Hendrix was my first, uh, concert. Okay. And I was, uh, still, I think it's was still in grammar school. Maybe, maybe older. I don't recall. But I remember seeing Jimmy come out and stand. Um, he basically, his, his feet were on the, on the base of the mic stand. And it was right up close to the, uh, Microphone, and he's doing fire, and he's not moving at all. He's just standing there singing and playing the song, and everybody in the audience is thinking, "What, well, uh, Jimmy? What? What? What's wrong?" And what? he <laughs> came to the solo and jumped off the thing and bent over, and you know, right through, through. You know, had the guitar way up in the air, and the whole place went crazy. So I knew right away the value of. Uh, you know, some of getting into it for real, and then having the audience join you. Right. The reason I describe it as such is because recently we've had a just a horrible um, a situation with people and them making faces while they play, <laughs> which. Which drives me nuts because you know I, I never make a face when I play. Right. And then I'll say that, and people will send, send pictures of me making all kinds of faces, <laughs> and I say, "Yeah, but I'm not making the face. Right. It's happening. It's just but happening. I'm not consciously doing it. Yeah. And I know of particularly one guitarist, and then a bunch of other people who. Make this big thing about you. Got to make the face. And you're absolutely backwards. Right. You got it completely wrong, yeah. and it drives me nuts. As you can tell, and I would it's agree like with you. Like someone telling you a joke, and you before you laugh, you got to think. hmm, joke was funny. Shall I laugh? Ha ha
1: ha! Right. Ho, it, ho, it, or it has
2: ee, to. Ee, ee. Yeah, no, I wonder understand. what I should do here.
1: It needs to come from within. Exactly so, so,
2: that's where it came from with Jimmy and then I remember when that first started happening with me where I am just playing and uh, I didn't in Japan when you go to rehearsal halls the walls are mirrors mm-hmm. so people watch themselves and figure their moves out and I go that's a goddamn shame because uh, it's all fake it's, <laughs> it's not that's not how it works right. either 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 it comes to you when you do it you don't choreograph. Uh, you don't script your your what you say as you're speaking to your friends or speaking from the heart,
1: right? Because you can't uh, script emotion. You cannot script emotion. You can't script emotion. No, let it happen. Yeah. So anyway, I went off there, but
2: it's always it's a pet peeve of mine that so many people get. And I see these little kids on YouTube making this mean face while they're playing bass, and I just want to jump through the screen and say, "Bro, don't don't fake it." Right. It's not fake until you make it with that. Right. This is art. Right.
1: <laughs> I, I agree <laughs> I with you. you. So make I'm it in
2: business maybe, but not in ours.
1: I'm glad you. you went off on that tangent because I agree with you. Now let's yeah. let's go to uh, Buffalo. Then and, and Talis begins to play uh, in clubs in uh, in Buffalo. When you begin the Talis project, you're just playing covers, correct? All covers.
2: Oh yeah, all covers. We did our first original song. Oh man! Uh, about seventy-five.
1: Okay, and, and but you but you start to gain some traction in Buffalo at least.
2: Yeah, we were the we were the biggest band around. We Palace uh, Tuesdays at the Barrelhead in West Seneca was the biggest night of the week.
1: And how many people uh, could fit in in into the in into there that club?
2: Three fifty. Okay. So they would they would put four they would put five hundred in there.
1: But you were there every Just Tuesday. Off the fire marshal. You were there every Tuesday. Um and so at what point is there some sort of decision made about uh hey, let's make a record.
2: Well that wasn't until years later. We uh,
1: uh, Or is that your the band's decision?
2: Seventy I think the first record came out in 79.
1: Okay. And and was that uh, self-produced?
2: Or? No, a gentleman by the name of Larry Swift produced it. He is, uh, became quite a golden year engineer throughout the years with a world reputation. Uh, another guy, Mick Gazowski, was a, a gentleman of, of his circle, and Mick is known as one of the most golden-ear, engineer uh, people on the planet. Uh, you know, he would uh, he would mix, uh, if you were still alive, he would mix a Whitney Houston record, and that's how good <laughs> okay. he is. And that, uh, so Larry was uh, one of the guys who was friends with Mick in this particular circle.
1: So how do we go from uh, Tallis Tuesday, say in 75, 76, uh, to this record?
2: Well, we just played so much that it was, and we're drawing so many people, and we started to sneak a few originals in. And so finally it was time to do what every other band did they sneak originals in until they get enough of them I heard by enough people that they people wouldn't leave the dance floor when the original started. Right. And uh, people were, were into it. So it was just this, like every other band in the world.
1: And, and another, just a natural songs. progression. Were you hooked up with a a manager or something at that point, or is the band doing this all on their own?
2: We had uh, people to take care of our business, yeah, manager, local manager guys, but they weren't anything of of note.
1: And and still very much relegated to uh, western New York. And, and Buffalo.
2: Well, that's where it was different. We, we struck out anywhere up to a five- to six-hour drive from. So we were played a lot in Toronto and Albany, Rochester, Boston, Baltimore, uh, Pittsburgh, wow. all over the place. We, we, we had quite a, a, a big following all over.
1: Okay. And this is all self-generated?
2: Yeah, we had our own truck, sound, lights, crew. Our our own office with our manager and our secretary, we all had our own apartments and we all uh, lived a pretty good life uh, without ever having done a record.
1: Right. And you. uh, So I want to guess that you and uh, your bandmates, uh, in addition to being accomplished musicians, had uh, uh, good heads for business.
2: Yeah, we were sensible people. You know, there was no, we didn't have any drug alcohol problems and uh, or insanity around us. I've been lucky most every band I've been in, I haven't had to deal with that. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't even had an aspirin since 1971, you know, <laughs> so I've never been a drug guy at all. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, so, you know, we, we it was pretty common sense. Uh, the, we,
1: we had a guy that did the business within the band, one of the band members, mm-hmm. and we all were pretty...
2: Uh, you know, pretty good with uh, understanding how the world worked.
1: Right, right. And isn't that (laughs) important? And and lost on, on some people. When you do the first record, you release it on your own, and you're selling it at shows, or do you manage to get it into some stores? How does that work?
2: Well, we were a big enough band in Buffalo that as soon as it went on sale, there were several distributors that bought up all the copies right there, put them in the stores. And I think they did, we did a run of 10,000 records and they were sold out. Wow, wow. So that was that bang. Uh, so we uh, carried on from there, uh, just did a few more songs. Now those those songs were done kind of by the entire band. I think I had two songs that were mine on there. Okay. Uh, uh, and, the, and some collaborations. Uh, but... Then when the next record came along, the other guys had stopped writing completely. And I wrote uh, all of uh, Sink Your Teeth into that in 1983, uh,
1: three, I think. Okay, but the, but the band at, at this point is just growing, and and you find yourself as having a career without really having thought about it or planned it.
2: Yeah, it's a natural occurrence. You know, we're playing, we're making money, and we're playing to more people and making more money and having a broader reach and traveling farther and getting recognition and more and more uh, press and blah, 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 and more radio play. It's a natural uh, progression. And and did
1: you feel uh, personally satisfied at this point with the way things were going? Or did you always feel like, you know, maybe there's something more that I can reach for?
2: Well, I've never been personally satisfied about anything, so I always wanted more, better, easier, faster, whatever the criteria might be that would make it better in my mind. But yeah, I wanted more. I wanted to, uh, because we, we weren't playing at the auditorium and, and playing in, you know, England or touring the world. We were playing in the Northeast. Right. And uh, more would be would be better. And there's no way we're going to, you can't. You know, to make it means you have a label deal on a major label mm-hmm. and you're playing to people from Seattle to Miami, from uh, Boston to San Diego. So you did aspire the- to
1: a major label, of course, and that and, and at that time, uh, that was a part of the natural progression. So does that happen for Talos? Does the major label deal come?
2: We never got a major deal with Talos, though. No. Mm-hmm. We got awfully close.
1: Talos does not get a major label deal. Uh, there's that idea of wanting more. So when does more ha- happen, or how does it happen? Is it sort of uh, serendipitous, or are you out actively well, we, looking for more?
2: We, we got a deal with a, a company called Important Records. They later created Relativity, and that was Steve Vai it was on that. I think uh, I'm not sure. One of the uh, there were there were associated with one of the labels that Metallica had signed to. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a whole bunch of labels out of New York City at that time that did things like that. Uh, Important Records uh, was, was was the one we were on. Steve Vai was later on that as well. Uh, what, what, what I was trying to say was uh, John Zula, Johnny Z, Johnny and Marsha Z had a record label that they signed, they were the first label for Metallica, and so they were also in the same circle of labels uh, as as the label that signed Okay, and we put out uh, "Think It's Into That Record," um, and uh, that uh, right at that point I went to. UFO needed a bass player in Europe, and i they called me to come over there and play, and I remember seeing the, the, the synchronicity in that, in that record charting uh, in the charts in Poland at the time, so I thought, <laughs> uh, well, if we're charting in Poland, we must be doing something, we were getting national press right. uh, in, in England as well, so and around the country in the USA as well, so that record started to do well, and uh, so from there we, we, we moved on, and uh, uh the band changed. I did a live record, and then soon after that, I, I got. Uh, we had done a tour with Van Halen in 1980 because we had uh, acquired new management at that point. No, actually not new management, extra management. Yeah, from Buffalo, there was a gentleman in Buffalo who was a uh, local promoter. was the big promoter. Every time a band would come into town, he would be the promoter, and and that was Harvey Weinstein. He was our manager. Uh, uh, he's not doing, doing so well today.
1: but The Harvey Weinstein?
2: He, the. So, uh, we, uh, uh, he got us that Van Halen tour. He got us a bunch of showcases for labels and never quite clicked. And I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat happy to say but Harvey and I ended on pretty bad terms. <laughs> <laughs> he hated me and I was not a fan of his. So, right. It was a precursor of what was to come. But nevertheless, by then we had, uh, uh, Gotten a, a national press and things of that nature. And then I got the call from uh, David Lee Ross, summer of 85. And,
1: and the rest is history.
2: And flew out to L.A.
1: If you think about all the things you've gotten to do in your life because you uh, saw your neighbor playing that bass and, you know, and your brother sat down with you and said, listen, that's the bass. One might say that, uh, you know, your your path was determined at a very early, very early place. But, uh, you know, when I think of you and uh, when I think of your story, the, the stories you've told me today, uh, the thread that seems to run through a lot of it is directly related to uh, some kind of discipline. We don't always think of of self-discipline as as a rock and roll thing, or maybe you know some some people don't want to think about it that way. I'm like you. I've I've always been very disciplined, and throughout my life, I was blessed to play with bands that that weren't into the, the, the drugs and the things like that. It was more about how good can can we get at this, how well can we uh, do this thing that that we do, uh, and it sounds to me like discipline uh, might be the foundation of, of everything you've done
2: uh, yeah it's uh, uh, I've been always been a disciplined uh, person and player more, more about my playing than anything else uh, and uh, we'll get there early and stay late for every every gig or every fan event or anything like that And always go the extra mile answer every fan letter and, before there was email. Right. Uh, you know, you, that's, you make your own. If you, if you have a burger stand and you make sure every burger is just spectacular and go the extra mile, and if somebody isn't satisfied, you go out and give them a free Coke or Pepsi. You know, you do more. You're, you're always going to do better in any, any occupation, no matter what it is. Right. Like I said, get there early, stay late, do more, become uh, uh, the type of person that they cannot consider living without you know, making sure that you become an essential part, you know, a talus night out in Buffalo, you had to be there, because knew, you knew everyone else was going to be there. And we had to get them there by playing the best songs we could find by other artists until we wrote our own. And You know, it's a, it's a, it, I, I, I often make the parallel to uh, having a hamburger stand. It's, it's really no different. You make a great product, you... you Keep it consistent and awesome, and spread the word. And you know, it's 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 not that much different as far as the business end goes. The creative end is a whole
1: different world. Well, but and and a lot of that seems to me that you fell in love with this thing. I, I don't know
2: if that's the case. I just this this is what I this just occupied me, and I occupied it, and I I didn't look at it in any other respect i i i uh listened to everything and i played everything i could and, you know it was a it was a great time
1: right right and it still is and it still is Absolutely. i think that's the amazing part of it this has been a, a cool conversation billy and uh i appreciate the, the the fact that we got to do it today uh, All right. And uh, we will look for more. It's the winery dogs now, right? Anything new coming from them?
2: Uh, we are working on the third record. Uh, pandemic slows everything down to about one eighth speed <laughs> so we're going as fast as we can doing as much as we can and uh there's uh, there's still a lot i'm, do- I'm doing recording for people around the world different clients contact me to play bass on their right. songs and so i've done about five or six albums and about 300 tracks
1: during the pandemic so we've been busy and all work at home yeah wow nice all right and you're in nashville nowadays
2: yeah, yeah, it's a, quite a great city. We're enjoying it very
1: much. Well, I'm glad you do. I'm glad for this conversation, uh, Billy, and uh, we'll talk to you again. Great.
0: Time, tune in next time for another episode of Loud and Sure of Myself. Of Loud and Sure of Myself. For another episode of Loud and Sure of Myself. Tune in next time. Tune in next time. Tune in the next time for Loud and Sure of Myself. Of Loud and Sure of Myself. Tune in next time for another episode of Loud and Sure of Myself. It's been a great. Loud and sure of myself. Tune in the next time for Loud and Sure of Myself. Yeah.